Hi guys, uh, my name is Dimitri Yiannopoulos. This is the first episode of the podcast. Today I'm here with Professor Schultz. We're going to be discussing uh, the his- history discipline and humanities in general and how it's in the general decline at the moment. So for me personally, I've looked at the statistics personally and I've seen that generally the history major is in decline, even though if you get a history degree, obviously you can do a lot of things with it. Uh, but what have you seen on your end? Uh, and could you introduce yourself just briefly uh, before answering the question? What have you seen on your end uh, with the history major, you being the history chair at UIC? Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, my name is Kevin Schultz. I'm the chair of the Department of History right now at University of Illinois, Chicago. Uh, I've taught there for 14 years. I got my PhD from Berkeley before then. And um, I love history and I think historically, and I think us understanding our history is vitally important, no matter what kind of society you live in, but in particular for our society, a democratic society, I think it's important to have an educated citizenry. Uh, So thanks for having me and thanks for doing this. And uh, I appreciate any sort of podcast that brings history and historical insights out into the world. That's fantastic and a great service. So to get to your question uh, about the decline of history majors, History is one of the disciplines that constantly seems to be on the decline, at least for the last 50 years or even more. Uh, If you look at the number of majors and things like that, the number of majors as far as percentages of college students has gone on a steady decrease for about 50 years. Sure, there are some certain blips up and stuff like that, but, but instead, in general, it's gone on a decrease. And in part, that's, I think, not a terrible thing. I think that's because universities are broadening what kind of Uh, opportunities they bring to students. So there are a more diverse, larger number of majors. There are more career-oriented majors. I don't think that's all entirely a bad thing, but as that has um, has expanded, it's diluted the number of of students who are majoring in history. Uh, But we've seen a particularly sharp decline across the country, not just at UIC, but across the country in the last 20 years, and especially since the 2008 economic crisis. Uh, At UIC, we lost maybe a third uh, to 40% of the number of history majors we had, even while enrollments went up at UIC in general. Um, Certain majors have grown like crazy. Criminal justice has grown like crazy, especially since 9-11, but most especially since the advent of all those criminal justice CSI television shows. Now everybody wants to go into that. Um, other majors like sociology have grown and biology has grown. At a school like UIC, history is always going to be kind of a smaller major, in part because we have so many first-generation students who are really using their university degree to climb the economic ladder, and so they want to have a clear path to professionalization. Often that's a misnomer because mid-career history majors make more money than mid-career engineering majors. They make more money out the gate, but we're marathoners and do better in the long run. And we report being happier at mid-career than engineers do. So it's a win-win kind of thing. But the reality is the numbers have suffered significantly uh, at UIC, down, say, 40, almost sometimes 50%, although we're making a brief rebound right now. So it's not a joke. It's a real thing. The history major is in decline, although I think we've stabilized since 2008. 
Uh, and now it becomes a question of how we rebound. Yeah, I think it's really interesting with STEM. I know a lot of people say, oh, people shouldn't be getting humanities majors. They should be going into STEM. STEM is where all the money is at. Uh, we need STEM. And eventually when we get to a point when automation takes over, we won't need those STEM majors and people can get their English degrees. They can get their sociology degrees. They can get their history degrees. Obviously, that's a really that's really difficult because a lot of people I know really like history. For me, I guess I'll share a little bit of a personal story, how I got into history. When I was a kid, my dad had this one book on ancient history. It went from uh, it went from, I believe, ancient uh, Mesopotamia all the way to around ancient Rome. And it was like very interesting. I would read it. It was a very difficult book for me at the time. And I wasn't really good at reading, obviously. And when I read it, it was like very interesting to me. It was like, oh, Alexander the Great conquered this much land in so much time. Obviously, it's not what I read right now. It's a little bit different. If I'm reading on antiquity, there's certain scholars I've read right now. But it was like a very interesting introduction. And it's something I'm obviously very passionate about, learning about ancient history, U.S. history. Uh, even if I'm not really interested in the topic, I'll obviously find some sort of connection to what uh to the current events because obviously i'm greek i'm connected to the greek world obviously i'll watch the greek news in greek and uh sometimes something that happens in the middle east impacts greece in some way so even if i'm not particularly interested uh it's obviously relevant to me but the argument of like oh hey stem like i, I get it a lot of people like i know the notion of free college i know a lot of people talk about that a lot of my friends a lot of history majors talk about that and I've looked into the argumentation, and obviously, if we had pre-college, for example, encouraging STEM degrees would probably be the best bet looking at the data. So there might be a lot of people getting humanities degrees, and those people might not have jobs. So I think uh, the, the debate kind of goes around, like, what can you do with a history degree? Like, obviously, you could be an academic, and I know I went to the one conference uh, with the Chicago Tribune reporter that we had at UIC, and he became a reporter. There's, there's obviously other things you can do with a history degree. But the question is, is there enough jobs if everyone decides, oh, there's free college, for example, in the United States, and people decide to get a history degree instead of uh, going into the STEM how someone intended? Yeah, it's, and just before we answer that question, I thought it's super interesting to hear your story of how you got into history. Everybody that talks to me about it has a similar kind of story, whether it was a magical book from their childhood or that doesn't happen that often, but so that I'm glad it happened for you. Usually it's a, it's a great teacher, whether it was in middle school or high school, some teacher. And history sort of has this sort of Ferris Bueller-esque notion of just asking names and dates and facts and super boring. But when a good teacher or a good book can turn those things into fascinating, compelling stories, that's when history comes alive. And it doesn't happen often enough. I'll, I'll agree with you on that. But what I find super fascinating is that I get people walk up to me all the time who are older, who are in their 40s, 50s, even 60s and 70s. And they say, I wish I knew more about history when I was younger. I love history now. I get to read all the books that I want to read. I'm interested in all these various subjects. But when I was younger, I was just not interested in it. It didn't seem like there was an obvious job. Nobody had made it come to life for me. But the, the interesting thing that I find about it is almost always, I hear this story all the time, and almost always it ends with this notion 
that as I got older, I realized that for me to understand anything that was going on in the world, I needed to have a better grasp of how it got that way. I needed to understand its history. And so then all of a sudden I realized how fascinating and weird and dynamic and strange history was, and I've loved it ever since. So I think it is sort of something you come to appreciate. It's like a fine wine. You come to appreciate, and some people are lucky enough to get to, get to taste it earlier, but, but not everybody is. Um, so your story, you know, fits right in there. Although I think you were lucky to have this appreciation for him early. And it's great that your dad had these books around the house. Um, so, so that's a fantastic story. My, my story is somewhat similar. It has to do with um, a high school professor. Mr. Mater was his name. And he was sort of an old hippie guy who protested the Vietnam War. And then he went into teaching. And for him, history was a struggle. Everything was a battle. And it was filled with stories of all these good guys and bad guys and complex situations and what the right thing to do was. And why do we love Andrew Jackson when look at the things that Andrew Jackson did, for instance. Um, and he made it sort of a really uh, interesting and argumentative discipline. And so for me, I was hooked as soon as I heard those stories from Mr. Mater. He totally hooked me on it. And that's why I went on to become a history major when I went to college. And I feel like it's, uh, you know, to get, get back to the topic, what you were asking about, I feel like it's, it's too bad that these kinds of stories don't happen to so many people earlier in their life. Uh, one of the things I love about UIC's history program, we have a teaching of history program, and you were mentioning that a little earlier. And, you know, UIC has done unbelievably good work at populating the high schools of Chicago and greater Chicagoland with really great history teachers who come from the kinds of backgrounds that you're talking about, who have an appreciation for history in the way that I'm talking about. And actually at UIC, the, some of the rebounded growth that we've seen in the history department has to do with the growth of our teaching of history program. So, so one obvious thing you mentioned was becoming an academic as far as a job. But another obvious job that, that people who love history really want to do is share it with younger kids, whether it's middle schoolers or high schoolers. And so, you know, I take great pride in the fact that UIC is one place that is populating Chicago and greater Chicagoland with these really excellent and dynamic history teachers. But in general, yeah, it's a problem. I mean, there is a sense of anti-intellectualism taking over the United States. There is a sense of anti-elitism being the key to political success. And with anti-elitism comes with this suspicion of academics and experts and professionals and I think there's this widespread notion that to have this intellectual expertise and to have this intellectual curiosity all of a sudden makes you suspect, makes you feel like, you know, you're not an authentic American or whatever, a real American. And I, I think that's genuinely unfortunate. Um, I think it's got a lot of political legs. But guess what? In the United States, it's had a lot of political legs ever since the Second Great Awakening of the early 19th century. So there's always been this tension. I think right now we're at a, at a high point of this anti-intellectual moment. Um, there are a lot of things propping it up that are going to be difficult to challenge, whether it's Twitter, Facebook, social media, meme culture, as I like to call it, just because, you know, people try and put a whole politics down in six words with a nasty picture or whatever. And, and it's, it's, you know, it's so, it lacks so much depth and it lacks nuance and the truth of the matter is we live in a complicated, complex society that requires nuance. And so I fear that the rise of these sort of simplistic understandings of the world um, are going are gonna to deprive us of a real genuine politics. And with that, a real genuine curiosity and interest about how history works and how history shapes us. 
So, so I think there are some huge structural problems in the way of us growing as a discipline. But, but I find, kind of feel like, you know, we're, we're slow and steady. We're always going to be there. And I think as people gain more experience and they, they deal with anti -intellect, the ramifications of anti-intellectualism, they're going to fall back on like, how do, what, how do we get out of here? This is sort of one of the questions you asked. How do we get out of here? How have people done this before? How do we go from a society where everybody is interested in I and me and individualism back to a society when people are interested in we and collectivism and the common wheel? How do we go from the I, we, I culture that we, that we are in to something different? Well, we've done it in the past. So let's look at history and see what some clues might be. Yeah, obviously you were uh, talking about populism and the anti-intellectual movement going across the world. That's obviously it's pretty interesting to me because I myself would consider myself a populist, but obviously not on their level. I consider myself on the other end of the spectrum, obviously. And so there's a lot of uh, things that obviously I know the rhetoric they're trying to use is on, honestly very appealing to a lot of like middle class uh, Americans, not work the uh, the the myth that all these people are like oh from the south they're hillbillies I think that myth is kind of true uh, kind of untrue uh, like I initially believed that but then the more and more I thought about it it just doesn't make sense like when you would look for example in the United States you would see your average Biden voter would be a lot poorer than your average uh, Trump voter so I thought that was very interesting uh, so that 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 hypothesis uh, it's kind of like history that hypothesis wasn't really true per se. And in terms of even in Poland, you have um, the abortion ban. And even in the United States, you have the Texas abortion ban. So you have this sort of uh, rise of right-wing populism that the right didn't really have before. The right before, they were just, uh, they had this sort of decorum. They were like very neoconservative, like let's interfere in Iran and Iraq. And I think they're kind of paying the consequences for how those Republicans handled a lot of those events. And now you have a, a populist. Like I think a populist was bound to to rise, whether it would be whether it would be Trump, DeSantis. Eventually, there was going to be a populist. Eventually, it was just a matter of time. Along with the 08 crash, there was just a lot of factors that led to populism rising throughout the world. So, well, one of the really interesting statistics I came across recently was um, some of the. Um, exit data from the polling of the 2020 election and it showed that the largest group as a percentage of population that voted for donald trump so the the the, the percentage of people that voted in the greatest number for donald trump were white americans who made between 100 and 150 thousand dollars so these are not poor people, you know, just to go on what you were talking about. These are not poor people. They're making, you know, six-figure salaries, although low six-figure salaries. And most of them had just achieved that level of success, uh, either the first generation of their family to achieve that level of success, or they themselves had just achieved that level of success. So what that means to me is that the, the population that is most appealed to that message or people who are filled with sort of anxiety, people who are concerned that they're not going to be able to stay at the level they have just achieved. And they're worried that any sort of blip, any sort of notion that the government is playing favorites to somebody else, whether it's black people or poor people or whatever, uh, is going to affect their newly found status in the, the low six-figure range. Uh, 
And so those are the people who are particularly receptive to the politics of Trump, which has to be, you know, sort of a populist stick it to the man kind of anti-intellectual politics, because they're worried that any intellectual, any ideas that are going to, you know, demand better schools or higher taxes for nicer roads or better hospitals or free education or whatever it is, are going to affect their status. And so there's a lot of anxiety in the air that I think is unfortunate. Um, and, you know, w- people always or often always vote out of a politics of fear. Um, and I worry that when more and more people do that, it becomes detrimental to the country. Yeah, I think a prime example of someone like that is actually Marjorie Taylor Greene. Uh, mm-hmm. she, she has a college degree, which I was pretty surprised to learn from uh, University of Georgia, I believe, in business. She took over her father's business and she was pretty successful with it. And like, uh, from what I understand is she actually believes a lot of those conspiracy theories, like a Jewish space laser. Uh, I don't know. There's a lot of Pizzagate, QAnon, like all those things she believes. And like, uh, she's not the type of typical person that I would think in 2016, like, oh, it's a lot of poor white people that are kind of, they have this anxiety. No, that's not true. She's pretty well off. And she, and it's kind of weird. Now you're seeing the people that the Republican Party was trying to appeal to. Now they're getting in power. So it's kind of strange to see those people who believe those conspiracy theories. Like if you look at someone like Ted Cruz, I don't think he believes most of the conspiracy theories. I think he's just saying it to pander to the base, obviously. So it's it's like very interesting. Now you're seeing those kind of people get in power. And, it, and, and it's like very shocking to me that someone like Marjorie Taylor Greene encompasses, encompasses what that person was. Yeah, it's shocking. It's shocking. And how do how do they get those votes? Why why do people vote for that? What what's compelling them? Yeah, obviously. Well, we have some answers, you know. Historically, we have some answers, but 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 it is stunning nonetheless. Yeah, obviously, uh, it's very very stunning. And obviously, uh, I was at my school in CPS, so this actually is kind of related. Like. Uh, and there was a book by Howard Zinn, and like I knew of Howard Zinn, I had some like things I knew vaguely about him. Obviously, I, I just decided to look at his Wikipedia page, and and then I looked at something like uh, certain states want to ban his book uh, because they think it's too leftist, they think it's anti-American or whatever it is. So like that kind of reminded me, like oh yeah, these people don't like a lot of historians, even some historians I myself have criticized they don't like them either it's kind of weird how they don't like a lot of historians and i believe it was like in kentucky or tennessee one of those two states uh they tried to ban his book and it was really weird it kind of got me thinking about the recent texas uh school that was trying to say oh for the holocaust you have to teach both sides of the holocaust i'm like i I don't i don't know what both sides of the holocaust are obviously Maybe you can say different perspectives on the Holocaust, but two sides, one saying the Holocaust is terrible, one saying the Holocaust is good. Uh, I don't know about that. That's not really, uh, that's really like a touchy subject. You can't really, it's really hard to argue that the Holocaust was good. Like, I, I, think, this, I think the school board member deliberately said something really interesting that, that they didn't anticipate saying, because of course it's ridiculous what that person said. But on the other hand, I think studying 
how the rise of the hatred of Jews came to be such a detrimental position, how the Holocaust happened, how did Germans fall into that thing? What is that side of the Holocaust, the pro-murdering of Jews and, and, and six million others? Like That's something that I think we need to know and study more than ever now, not because we want to duplicate it. Of course, that's a ridiculous thing to say, but because we want to prevent it. So I think, but I, that is not at all what that, that, that person meant in Texas. Yeah. But, um, obviously, but, but it's interesting to me how historians can actually mediate this sort of dispute. One example that came along recently was sort of the 1619 project, oh, yeah. which, yeah. which was, you know, the New York times who are not historians and there were not a lot of historians participating in the, in the project but they wanted to craft a new history of the United States that premised slavery as its centerpiece, as opposed to freedom. And they looked at all the classic texts in American history and they sort of built a straw man because it doesn't exist. So it's easy to blow over um, about how all the history texts had ignored slavery or not put slavery as an important enough factor, which is total malarkey, but they crafted this whole 1619 project um, which was widely debated and um, basically uh, mocked is too strong of word, but widely debated and widely destroyed basically on historical grounds by some of the most important, biggest historians around. Yeah. But, but nonetheless, the right ignored the fact that historians were offering this mediating middle ground perspective. And then they countered with Donald Trump's famous 1776 project, which again was equally and even more pernicious and more malarkey and total bonkers history. Um, but historians sort of mediate between the two. You know, we sort of see the 1619 project as historically inaccurate, but important because of what it was trying to do. Whereas the 1776 project was not even important and it was not even history and it had no historians involved in it. And so, you know, they weren't exactly equal, but they both were hugely problematic from the historian's perspective. Mm -hmm. And I think it's an interesting example of how historians can mediate between the extremes of the left and the extremes of the right. Um, basically just because we rely on facts and analysis and data points and that necessarily lends itself to complication and to mediation. Yeah. I I guess I'll share my personal story with the 1619 project. I was in a class. I'm not going to say what class it was. It was a teaching of history class. Uh, My fellow teaching of history majors will probably remember this event where we were talking about the 1619 project as a tool to teach history. And I said, hey, the 1619 Project's not that great. I said, there's a lot of historical inaccuracies. It's sure, you could you could make the argument it's making, but the evidence they use in there is just terrible. I said, a lot of historians have debunked it, and it's something I would personally not use in my classroom. Like, uh, the instructor didn't like that I said that, but obviously it's something that historians are saying right now, and I agree with them, because when I read it, 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 it's not, it's terribly written. The historical evidence is not there. And it's something I don't even think CPS should be teaching. I asked my uh, cooperating teacher, I'm not going to say his name, obviously, why you, why they're teaching the 1619 Project. He said, oh, it's probably in light of like recent events. Uh, and I was like, it's not historically accurate. You can teach the ideas in there with, uh, with the correct historical evidence. And I, it's just kind of like, for me, for someone like, hey, I kind of I agree with your perspective that in some points but you're not using correct evidence. And it's like, and it's like, oh, I just got kind of brushed off. Like, oh, okay, I'm not gonna comment on that. And it was like, okay, 
Like that's a, a prime example of you ignoring criticism and it's obviously valid criticism. There are historians who have commented on how the 69 pro project is not good and you were saying, oh, I like the idea, so I'm just gonna keep it. Yeah, yeah, and it's tough. I mean, that's coming from the left and from the right. It's, it's, it's difficult when we have sort of the sense that we need to be more careful about what we say. I think that's smart and good and right and we need to be more conscientious of the fact that there are many other voices that are in the room and that's a good thing and that is what it means to live in a democratic polity that has 330 million people living in it um but that doesn't mean we get to sacrifice you know all historical facts or all all historical events and we we can't necessarily craft our own history it's just poorly done yeah. and yeah. i i worry that you know i mean history has always been politicized so let's not pretend that this is anything new yeah. But on the other hand, you know, I, I worry that they're, the parties are taking over how we understand the past. I think it's doubly important for students to be taking history classes. Yeah. Honestly, with historians, historians used to be on the right, obviously, with the, nat with the national, building a national narrative, trying to build the nation state. Uh, so the idea that historians have always been on the left is not true. There was a, a period of time where they were trying to build up nationalism have people have this shared mythical past. So historians have been used as a tool to form nations, to have people, uh, to make sure people have a common history. And mm -hmm. like, a lot of people don't understand that. It's like kind of strange. And a lot of people think it's kind of strange. It's like, oh, this is a mythical past. Like uh, I can think of a recent example, like uh, with uh, Northern Macedonia with the name dispute. A lot of those people are saying, oh, they're descended from Alexander the Great. But obviously, if you look at the facts, they're not. They're, right. they're Slavic. Uh, Alexander the Great's a Hellenic. Uh, it would be considered a Hellenic empire. So technically, it's closer to Greeks, obviously. So they kind of had that mythical history. They had the statue over there that they put up. And uh, yeah, uh, they're trying to create this mythical past that's not true. And a lot of people don't really understand what that means. Like uh, with America, like, oh, freedom, democracy, and all that. Like, is that really what America is for? Like, is the Electoral College truly democratic, for example? Like, you have to ask these questions. Are these actually true, what they're telling me? Or is it not true? Or is it somewhat true? But so you kind of have uh, that kind of uh, nuance, obviously, that you were talking about earlier to be able to analyze something and see the merits on both sides, not equally, obviously. I'm not like someone, oh, the middle is always right. No, you got to look at some of the arguments and say, for example, I know a prime example of nuance. I'm sorry about that. I know a prime example of nuances with the Ottoman period in Greece and how a lot of uh, people, a lot of Greeks and Greek Americans say it was a terrible period. Okay, sure, some atrocities were committed, obviously. Uh, but generally, for your average citizen, it was pretty tolerant. Like, uh, your religious communities were pretty nice. Sure, there were some uh, acts of violence, but that's more of a complete perspective, obviously. Yeah, exactly. Exactly right. And it's hard to know how you how you come out of this, um, other than make a case for history in a lot of ways, you know, to, to teach it better and to get students in front of it more. And that's sort of the struggle that that I'm confronting when I... I'm working as the chair of the department, trying to grow the number of history majors we have, trying to grow the number of history graduate students we have, trying to grow the number of students who are sitting in our seats, 
Um, you know, and I think we've got a great bunch of teachers at UIC, and it's just a matter of turning that into a larger number of majors. Yeah, obviously, I bet a lot of the faculty, uh, a lot of them are obviously great. Uh, yeah, a lot of them are obviously great. I, I know, for example, a lot of um, there's there's a lot of la there's a lot of holes in the history department. Obviously, there's some subjects that are not covered as much. Some subjects that are covered more, for example, there's probably a lot more European historians from what I've seen. Uh, there's going to be more, I feel like it's more limited in Asia and Africa. I think I remember one time you were asking for feedback uh, about what you should add as a new 400 level class. And like I said, oh, hey, China or something like that, uh, because we don't really have a 400 level class. And we did it. We did it. We did it. We added China. Yeah. We did it. We went to China. But no, you're exactly right. And that goes to another point that we haven't really talked about yet, which is um, basically since the 1970s, there's been a deliberate attempt to destroy un public universities in American life. Um, in part, this is from the right wing critique that universities are always these seedbeds of, um, of liberals or lefties um, and a hotbed of liberalism. And so what has happened is basically people have voted to pay less and less taxes on, on themselves and elected leaders who want to pay less and less taxes. And as the states have had less and less money, they've given less and less money to higher education. And so two things have happened. One is tuition dollars have gone up. So you're now paying, I don't know what you're paying, 15, 16,000 bucks a year to go to UIC. 17,000. 17,000, 30 years ago, it would have been almost free, you know, it would have been a few hundred bucks. But because the state can no longer give us any money, we have to rely on other forms of income. So we're relying on tuition. So higher education, which has gotten more important in people's economic success, has gotten more expensive by a factor of, I don't know, there's somebody knows the number, maybe 20 or something like that. Ridiculous. I mean, my parents went to state schools in uh, in California, and they were paying like five dollars a credit hour, and that was in the '60s. But still, it was unbelievably inexpensive, and now it's it's definitely not that. It's gone up significantly. And the other thing you do when you run out of money, besides raise tuition, is you cut back on programs. So we used to have a Japanese historian, and now he left, and we didn't get to replace that person. We used to have two people who were historians of Africa. Uh, one of them died, and we never got to replace that person. We used to have historians of South and Central America, and now we've got one person who teaches anything below the southern border of the United States. So it's... Uh, you know, it's hugely problematic. We in the history department feel your pain. We would love to be able to offer more classes. We would love to be able, able to offer a broader array of classes. And I don't necessarily feel like, uh, I don't necessarily, I feel badly for the deans because the deans are the ones who make these decisions on not to hire another African historian or whatever. Um, but the deans sort of are stuck with limited resources themselves. And then they look at a major like criminal justice, which has, which has a huge number of students who are majoring in it. And then they look at a, a discipline like history, which has, you know, steady or declining enrollments as, as far as majors go. And she's going to obviously get any resources she has to the one where it's, it's growing rampantly. So it seems like it's a huge marketing problem, both to taxpayers to pay more for higher education and to students to get them to recognize that, 
you know, you get your criminal justice degree and that's great. And we need people doing that work, but it doesn't necessarily mean that that's the only way you need to think about yourself. You know, you don't need to pigeonhole yourself. Universities are not job training programs. Yeah. Obviously with the criminal justice major, a lot of these people are trying to be lawyers. You can get a history degree and become a lawyer, obviously. And a lot of people don't really know that. I've met people who said, oh, I got a biology degree and I went to law school too. Uh, yep. and, I, and I did something else. So obviously, I think that part of marketing should be is very key, showing like, hey, you can get a law degree. You don't need to do criminal justice. You could study history, and a lot of those skills from history actually transfer better in some ways than what you would learn in criminal justice, because you would learn how to argue. Um, for example, with a historian, you know how to argue. You know how to read primary sources, where a criminal justice major might not be. As, uh, as prepared to do that, they might know the law, they might know how the law is applied, but reading sources and figuring out stuff is, might be a little bit more difficult for them yeah. based on the political climate. Uh, like you could look at previous precedent in the law, but maybe the political climate affects uh, something about it. Maybe you look at, uh, th there's a lot of different factors that you look at and it involves history, a lot of the things. So. I think that's that misconception that you need a criminal justice major to go to law school is just untrue. And it's something. Oh, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. We are meeting with a, with somebody who got his history degree at UIC in 1968, I think. And he went on to law school at the University of Chicago. And then now he's, you know, let's just say he's thinking of becoming a big donor to UIC. So he's done very well for himself and he's trying to, make the argument that you just made, that history was vitally important in his pathway to, to becoming a very successful lawyer. So yeah, I'm open to all ideas for marketing the history department. Yeah, obviously I know the classics department's very good at doing that. Like marketing, they could be an attorney. I know some people who get classics degrees that go on to med school. And I was like, what? You go on to med school with a classics degree? I'm like, oh, yeah, that's, sure. that's, kind of, that's kind of crazy. I'm like thinking from my perspective. So it's like, I think the classics department's really good at marketing that, even though the classics department has lost a lot of uh, people recently. Yes, they're in the same fate that they're suffering the same fate that we are in history. So, you know, and, and all of our classes overlap with classics and or almost all of them, if not all, most of them overlap. So, yeah, they're they're in the same boat we're in as well. And they're excellent teachers over there. So it's it's a great, great unit. Yeah, obviously. I guess we'll get on to the last topic. Uh, so in terms of uh, the decline of history majors, how do you market right now? How do you market the history a history degree to someone who's considering it or someone who has it and they realize, oh, I can't get a job with this. What am I going to do with just a base history degree? Uh, how do you market it to people? Well, I mean, that's a great, that's a great question. Partly what we've been doing and you, you would know if it's successful or not um, is simply pointing out that when you get a history degree, basically history is just a really fun way to get a bunch of job skills. If, if that's how you want to look at it from a professional, I think it's important in teaching you as ways to think, but if you want to look at it in purely professional terms, it's just a really fun way and important way to get skills like learning how to write, learning how to take a whole bunch of information and analyze it in a, and, and, and conceptualize it in a way that you could pass on to somebody else, say your boss later in life. 
What we do is we do tons of data analysis. What we do is we locate sources. We know which questions to ask. Uh, and we know where to find the answers. That's sort of what we're trained to do. We, we are um, unbelievably voracious learners. We read a lot. We contextualize a lot. We come at, at, come at things from different perspectives. And then we're able to elaborate what those uh, perspectives are and articulate ways forward. So, you know, there are very, very hands-on, very, very practical job components to what you learn as a history major. None of the things I said have anything to do with learning about the past but they have to do with the, the skills you get when you're learning about the past. And I think we're very well set up to, to talk about that. I work every uh, spring with the future soon to be graduating class of history majors. And, you know, we go over what their resume says, we go over what jobs interest them, we go over the possibilities for them. And then I actually, you know, do mock interviews and I, I help them write their letters and stuff. So we're, we're working very hard on the sort of on the professionalization aspect of it. Yeah. On the other end of things, we're, we're sort of, um, I, I put together, a, so I mentioned earlier how we've got this great teaching program that populates all of Chicago area schools with history majors from UIC. And so what we're doing now is we're compiling a list of names of teachers who are all our students who are now teaching, and we're going to send them all flyers and offer all sorts of hands, handouts to go into their class and things like that to talk to their students about the benefits of a history major. So we're trying to start, you know, young, go into the high schools and see if we can start preaching the preaching this song to them so that they get the message. So we're working on it. Um, and I, like I said, you know, I'm not an expert and I'm always open to new ideas. Yeah, obviously. Uh, yeah, obviously. Uh, yeah, a lot of uh, skills like writing an email, like a lot of the times I edit people's papers on the side just as an act of good faith, obviously. I yep. don't take any money right now because uh, I don't think that's right at the moment because a lot of people are struggling, obviously. And uh, it's it's honestly good practice for me to see how someone writes. Like, for example, mm -hmm. uh, in history, you're not you're discouraged from using passive voice. Obviously, there are times where you need to use passive voice, obviously. Uh, but in history, we don't use it because we think it's not very direct. It's a very indirect way of talking or. Uh, writing more so writing talking it's a little bit different obviously but uh, yeah that that's a really key aspect in terms of having uh, educators come in and and talk to people in high school I think that's a really key thing and uh, another thing I think is really uh, essential is using like uh, media obviously like right now I'm watching Battlestar Galactica and my skills as a historian a lot of the things as uh, seem so it's so interesting to me looking at it from a historical perspective or i know more anthropologists are more of a fan of that show than more historians and i've been looking at it i'm like oh this is so interesting like the idea mm -hmm. of like uh humans crafting this uh these machines that eventually take over it's like it's not like your typical way of uh crafting a story it's just it's very interesting and even when i recommended to you an anime called legends of the galactic heroes i said one of the main characters as a historian and how it's a space opera i i think it's better than star wars obviously and how a lot of uh there's a lot of episodes that are dedicated to history so like one example they'll explain oh this is what happened in the history thing you'll have like a documentary in there and you'll be like oh that's why the world is like this 
So obviously the main character studied, one of the main characters studied military history, but you see how, for example, like some of the tactics in there are reminiscent of old military history, even though you have all this technology because you can jam, for example, uh, now you have to send out a pigeon like uh, ancient uh, battles, like when ancient battles were fought. So obviously in a lot of media, if you have these historical skills, you can understand it a lot better and you can enjoy it more. I think that's uh, more of like a recreational thing like, oh, hey, when you're sitting at the TV watching a show, your history degree helps you enjoy it a little bit more and talk about it with your friends. But I think those are the things that make you happy, obviously. Having a job and having money, uh, like that that's good up to, I looked at a study up to $75,000. If you're set for up to $75,000, you need some more fulfillment in life past that. And I think a history degree could be that fulfillment if you have a stable job and a stable income. Yeah, there's something beautiful in the way you think as a historian and the kinds of questions you ask. And if you just have this depth of knowledge, I mean, it just enriches your life in so many ways, whether it's, you know, the history of art. I mean, if you look at art, art doesn't make any sense without the historical context in which it was created. Not only the, the, the social or economic or political history that was going on whenever the artist created it, but also the whole narrative of art history. And because the artist is in conversation, not just with their own society, but also with everybody who's ever painted before and, and, and impacted their lives. And so as a viewer, if you're not an artist, as a viewer, you need to understand that history. And we learn how to think critically in those ways. One of the statistics that I really love is how much happier we are at mid-career than um, other majors, than STEM majors. I find that fascinating, sort of the number you're talking about, $75,000 and over. I mean, happiness is important. After a certain amount of money that you make, you know, you got to get sustenance and family and all that kind of stuff. But after that, you know, money is not what's going to be what makes you happy. I love the study that says... Once you get over, I think $100,000 was this particular study. Everybody said they would be happier if they had 10% more. So if you made a million dollars a year, you still wanted 10% more and that would bring you happiness. But if you made $500,000, you still wanted 10% more. And if you made $100,000, you still wanted 10% more. So it wasn't like you hit some magic number. You just want more to make you happy. The point is that money is not going to be what makes you happy. It'll make you aspirational and want more in a way. But the richness of life that you get from a history major or from appreciation of, of, of understanding the past and knowing how to think about it, I think that's the that's the right ticket to happiness. Yeah, obviously, I myself um, I study history all the time. I have a huge library. I like go, kind of going back to back to the one topic of like how you have different perspectives. I have mine comp in my library. Uh, do I agree with it? Obviously, no. I have uh, Vladimir Lenin in my library. Do I agree with Lenin? No. But do I have it in my library? I have Marx in my library. Do I? agree with Marx, not really, but to be a history uh, major, you need to understand Marxian terms, obviously, because a lot of a lot of people use that. So I have a lot of things I disagree with. My library is not filled with like a huge echo chamber. It's in my basement, obviously, uh, in a little shelf. Uh, it's obviously, obviously, it's not, it's filled with a lot of classic stuff that I'm very interested in, but mm -hmm. it's not filled with like this echo chamber stuff, like, oh, leftist thinking or right wing thinking. I, I have Ayn Rand in there too. I have some crazy ideas in there that I, I don't even agree with, but hey, I need to understand them obviously to understand, to have a more complete view on society. And I think uh, my skills as a historian 
have me think like, oh, just because I disagree with uh, an idea doesn't mean I shouldn't learn to understand it. No, that's exactly right. You have history right there. Get exposed to all the ideas. Yeah, obviously. Obviously, you probably have some controversial stuff in your library behind you, obviously, uh, uh, that you probably don't agree with. There's one. You can't. You can't. Hitler's American model. It's it's a book arguing that Hitler learned how to be so awful by studying the creation of our Jim Crow system in the United States. And he modeled a lot of his terrible politics after what Southerners were doing to black people. Yeah. Yeah, obviously, I, I, from what I've heard, uh, since I have more of a, from Greece, I've heard from the Ottoman Empire, he was inspired by the Armenian genocide. So there, that's another argument there, too. Are you going to ignore it because Hitler is bad? I wouldn't ignore that, obviously. Exactly. Exactly right. Exactly right. So obviously, so obviously, I guess uh, just a little food for thought to, to end this with uh, what books, uh, what makes a book... Uh, do you think uh, no books should be bad, or is there a certain point where a book is so hateful that a book should be banned? So I, I myself, I'll give my perspective on this first. I myself am kind of a free speech absolutist. As long as you're not making direct threats of violence, I think it should be fair game. So a lot of so I'm in favor of a lot of extreme ideas. Being able to read that, obviously, I'll collect connected to Battlestar Galactica, where they have that one character. I completely forgot his name in the first season. I'm still watching it where he has a book with extreme ideas of like uh, democracy, obviously, and how he's an anarchist, obviously. And his book was banned on universities. So I, I, I personally don't think his book should be banned, but uh, I don't know what you think about that. Just to end this off with something uh, to think about. Yeah. I mean, in a sense, I totally hear what you're saying. Uh, I think that there should be no books that should be banned. I agree with you, um, especially for adults. I think that uh, I, I'm similar to you as a free speech absolutist, unless there are threats of violence or you know yelling fire in a crowded theater and all that kind of stuff. I think the United States has done a fairly decent job at upholding free speech rights. I do think that it gets trickier when it comes to having access to books for children and exposing them to ideas either out of context or with no educational context. I do think we need to be sensitive of children's sort of just limited knowledge. I don't, I, I've met many children who are much smarter than I am, but they don't know as much just because they haven't spent 40 years reading. But so I, I, I'm not impugning their, their smarts, but what I'm saying is that they're too young to have read enough to really understand the context in which things were created. And sometimes they can take ideas into dangerous and bad spots. So I, I do think we need to be a little more careful or cautious when we expose children to certain books and certain ideas. Um, you know, for instance, all the controversy about Huck Fenn and its use of the N-word. And this is a classic book of American literature. And Tom Sawyer is, you know, sort of a... Uh, a perfect character in American life and boyhood and all that kind of stuff. So what do we do with the N word? You know, do we, do we get a book that has been, has completely removed it for children so then children can have access to all these ideas or do we keep it in there and expose these kids to these really hurtful words? Um, or do we teach the kids the context in which it was used so gleefully by Samuel Clemens, Mark Twain, you know, so, so I think there's, there, I think, 
to say that I'm an absolutist when it comes to free speech is true when it comes to adults. But I do think we need to be careful of, of, of some words, especially when it comes down to ch- exposing children to things that they just can't fully understand in the moment. And not because they're not smart enough, but because they haven't been taught. And I don't know exactly the right way to deal with that question. I mean, I've thought about it a lot. Um, my, my fallback is to teach the controversy um, as far as a way of educating students about why these words are bad and why we need to be careful and when we use them. Um, but I don't know that that holds up every single time. Yeah, obviously, that's a really interesting question for uh, listeners to think about, um, to think about, um, like, uh, should some books be banned? Like, uh, should certain people only have access to books or should certain people not? Should children not have access to certain books because they they can't handle it? Obviously, a lot of kids have a mind like a sponge. They absorb information. So if they see something hateful, they might think, oh, this is correct, obviously. So, yeah, that's a really good question to end this off is should books be banned? Uh, should they be banned for certain people? If not, do you share the similar views with us? No books should be banned, but maybe there should be some limits on what children should read. I would love to hear love. Love to hear uh, everyone's thoughts on that. Thanks. 